Our reading this morning is continuing in the letter of Ephesians in the first chapter. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 14. It's from the book of Ephesians, starting at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. May the God bless the reading of his word together. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. I'm David. I'm another one of the pastors here at King's Church. And if you're visiting for the first time, we want to welcome you. Um, this morning, as Jason mentioned, we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. And we'll be looking at the next four verses, verses 11 through 14. Now, if you've been with us these past few weeks, um, you've, we've gone over Paul's incredible run-on sentence that begins in verse 3, where he, he's pouring out his heart eloquently and passionately about all the incredible blessings that God has for us in Christ Jesus. And in verse 4, he talks about God's election of us in Christ our adoption through Christ in verse 5, our redemption and forgiveness in Christ in verse 7, and so forth. But Paul is not done yet. In verses 11 through 14, he mentions two more blessings that we have in Christ, and these two blessings will form the outline of our message today. In verses 11 through 14, Paul wants us to know that our future is full of hope and glory because one... We have been predestined for a future inheritance, and that roughly covers verses 11 through 12. And two, we have been sealed for a future redemption. That roughly covers verses 13 through 14. And some of you may be wondering when you hear this outline, so what? That sounds like a bunch of lofty theological ideas to me. How does that actually intersect with my daily life and the struggles that I'm going through? Why should these verses matter to me? Well, in 1678, a tinker-turned-preacher named John Bunyan published a book, beloved by many, and some of you may have read it, it's called The Pilgrim's Progress. And in this book, the main character is kind of this everyman character, and his name is Christian. And he's going on a great journey to the celestial city. And on the way, he encounters many characters, both good and bad. He faces trials, experiences triumphs, and so forth. It's meant to be an allegory of the Christian life, the way that to, to give illustrations and examples of what it's like for a Christian to go through life and the, the troubles and the tribulations that they might face. And even though it's simple and readable, it's also profound and moving. And towards the latter half of the book, Christian and his friend Hopeful are walking on the narrow path, the path that they're supposed to go on, and then they spy across the fence 
that kind of keeps, that kind of bounds the path, they spy something called the bypath meadow. And now, obviously, the, the terms are very kind of in your face. The bypath meadow, which looks easier and appears to be going in the same direction as the path they're supposed to be on. But, well, they decide to say, oh, well, it looks easier, it looks nice, it's like a nice meadow, it doesn't hurt our feet like the rocky path that we're on, and so they decide to take it. And after a while, they realize that this path is leading them astray, and they begin to journey back towards a path that they should be on. But they have trouble getting back and are actually forced to spend the night on the grounds of a castle. And as they are sleeping, they're awakened by the owner, the giant Despair, who, le- who takes them to Downing Castle and throws them in the dungeon. And over the course of several days, Giant Despair begins to beat them, torment them by telling Christian and Hopeful that there is no hope and that only death awaits them. Now perhaps there are some of you who feel like you can relate to Christian and Hopeful. Because of the circumstances that are presently in your life, you feel as if you are trapped in a dungeon with no way out and despair is your jailer. All is bleak and hopeless. You cannot help but question God's love and hand in your life. And some of you may not be in the pit of despair, but you don't feel hopeful about the future. You're looking forward and the only things on the horizon seem to be more busyness, more tiredness, more tasks, more responsibilities, and you have a different despair. It's not one that overwhelms you and brings everything to a screeching halt. It's a managed despair that doesn't turn the world black, but drains the world of all life and color. But Ephesians 1, 11 through 14, our passage today is meant to remind us to sing to us a song that our future is not bleak, but instead it's full of hope and glory. And the first reason that our future is full of hope and glory is that we have been predestined for a future inheritance. We have been predestined for a future inheritance. In verses 11 and 12, we read, in him, again, this is a blessing that comes from being united to Christ, what Jason Pastor Jason talked about last week. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, some of you might actually be reading a different translation from the ESV, which is what we use here at King's Church, and you may be like, wait a second, that's not what my Bible is saying. Because, for example, the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation says this, in him, we were also made his inheritance. And the American Standard Version says, in whom also we were made a heritage. And the NIV says, in him we were also chosen. So, and there are versions that do agree with the ESV, such as the New American Standard, the New King James. Now, the reason I bring this up is because, obviously, if you read it one way, it's going to have a different meaning than if you read it the other way. And one set of translations is basically saying, we have obtained an inheritance, while another set of translations is saying that we have been made an inheritance. We've been made God's inheritance, God's possession. And when translations agree, disagree like this, 
it means that there is actually an interpretive difficulty in the original text, the original Greek text. And it comes then as no surprise that the Greek word Paul uses is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's unique. Paul, it's, it is found in other Greek literature, but it's unique to the New Testament. And because of that, there aren't parallel passages that can easily give context for the way that Paul likes to use this word or that the kind of the meaning that he's trying to convey with this. And that's why the translators are very divided on what, on how to, how to take this. And the further difficulty is that both obtaining an inheritance from God and being made an inheritance of God are supported concepts in the rest of Scripture. So in some sense, it's comforting because no matter where you land on this, um, you're going to be within the bounds of Scripture, and it's going to be biblical. Um, for example, in Deuteronomy 4.20, 420 through 21, we actually see these two concepts directly juxtaposed next to each other. In verse 20, it reads, but the Lord has taken you, Moses is speaking to the people of Israel, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. There, Moses is calling the people of Israel God's inheritance. And in the next verse, verse 21, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So there we see that God also gives an inheritance. And likewise, there are New Testament passages that support both meanings. We look at verse 14 of this chapter, which supports uh, obtaining an inheritance, and verse 18, which talks about God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, which one should we choose? Well, I prefer to go with the translation that you see written in the ESV. We have obtained an inheritance for two reasons. The first reason is that verse 14, which talks about, which we're going to cover, talks about God giving us an inheritance, stands closer to verse 11. So I think that Paul was thinking of our inheritance rather than God's inheritance of us as he was writing these verses, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the second is that verse five, which we covered last week, is a close parallel to verse 11, as both verses speak of being predestined according to God's will. And in verse five, the blessing that we have in Christ is adoption. And verse 11 seems to build on that idea that we who are adopted are now brought into full status as sons, and we will receive the full inheritance that, we, that, that, we, that, is, that God has prepared for us. Now you might be wondering, what is that inheritance? The inheritance that awaits us is the inheritance of God's true son, our older brother, Jesus, who died in our place. Our inheritance is the inheritance of Christ, because as the text says, we are in him, united to him, so that all the incredible richness of Christ's inheritance is now ours. Romans 8.17 calls us heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And what exactly does Jesus stand to inherit? He stands to inherit everything. Now about a month and a half ago, Jessica and I went to see Crazy Rich Asians. Some of you may have seen that movie as well. 
And in that movie, there are ridiculous displays of wealth. Even in the opening scene, which really struck me, the Young family and the Leong family, it's, it's a Chinese, Chinese family, they arrive, Chinese Singaporean family, they arrive in Calthorpe Hotel in London on a rainy day. They're sopping wet and they're tired. And when they ask to be shown to the hotel's largest suite, the hotel manager refuses even though they had clearly made a reservation. The, the mothers argue back and forth with the hotel staff and eventually, eventually, Eleanor Young calls her husband from a public telephone. And when the family returns to the hotel, to the, hotel the owner, Lord Calthorpe, comes down and he greets them as the new owners of the stunned hotel staff. Because in that phone call, she basically, after that phone call, she had called her husband, and the husband called the owner and said, hey, I want to buy this hotel from you. So the hotel staff now have to treat them as a new owner, and they can't do anything about denying them the reservation. Now, it's a great display of wealth that someone could just make a call and say, I want to buy that hotel. I doubt probably no one in here can, can do that. Um, but it's nothing compared to Jesus. Because he says, yeah, North America, that's mine. Actually, the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars, that's all mine and I'll do with it as I please. Colossians 1.16 says, all things were created through him and for him. And Hebrews 1.2 tells us that Jesus is the heir of all things. And because we have been united to Christ, all things are ours too. In the new heavens and the new earth, we will rule and reign with Christ. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Have you ever thought about that? The meek, the humble, those who have recognized their spiritual poverty and need for Christ are those who will inherit the whole earth and everything in it because they are joined to him. And there is another greater aspect to our inheritance, and that is God himself. For God can give us nothing more precious than himself. And through Christ, we experience the perfect, intimate relationship that God had with his son, that the father had with his son from eternity past. The psalmist in Psalm 73 desired this when he said, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Portion was the word, the Hebrew word used to describe a piece of land distributed for an inheritance. And we also see this at the end of time when the meek have inherited the world. God gives himself to us in Revelation 21.3. And a loud voice from the throne cries out saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And how have we attained this inheritance? The next part of verse 11 tells us how we have obtained this incredible inheritance. It is through God's predestination, which happens according to God's purpose and by the God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. From before time began, God chose us and not only purposed in his will 
that we would obtain an inheritance. Notice the difference between this verse and verse 5. He also works all things to accomplish that purposeful will. It's one thing to have the best laid plans to make spreadsheets for your life, you know, to have detailed plans written out to a T, but it's another thing to have the absolute power and authority to absolutely secure the fulfillment of that plan. But God, in his perp- God in both, but in God, both the power and purpose are perfectly joined so that there is no question about our future, no doubt about whether or not we will receive that inheritance. And how should having such an inheritance affect us? Well, it should give us hope because God cares about our future and he has always cared about our future. Hope is normally understood as mere wishful thinking. I might say to Jessica, my wife, I hope this restaurant is good. Or you might say, I really hope that I get this job. But Christian hope is different because it's confident. It's rooted in sure realities that are to come. And the sure reality we hear in this passage is that God has secured our future. He has worked, is working, and will work all things from eternity past and into eternity future. We all have weaknesses in our faith, areas or times in our life, whether past, present, or future time, where God seems to have hidden his face, his goodness, his love from us. For instance, for some of us, it might be the past, terrible childhood trauma, or a season of life where we felt abandoned. And God wants us to know that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. Some of us might struggle in the present with condemnation and guilt over our current way of life. And Paul wants us to know there is redemption and forgiveness even now. And God's lavish grace is for us. And some of us might struggle to understand what kind of future God would have for us in light of our declining health or the aftermath of a divorce or death of a loved one. And God, through Paul, wants you to know that you have a future inheritance. It is full of hope and it is glorious. The second reason why our future is full of hope and glory is because we are sealed for a future redemption, is because we have been sealed for a future redemption. In verse 13 we read, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The next blessing we have in him, in Christ, is that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And this sealing happened when we heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed. Of course, being sealed with the Spirit in Christ is not the only thing that happened when we believed, when we heard and believed the gospel. But it's one spiritual blessing that we don't think about very often. And yet, there is such a benefit to understanding and meditating on this truth. So what does it mean to be sealed with the Spirit? Well, in the time of Scripture, in the time when Scripture was written, the Greco-Roman world, 
In those days, and even today, seals had several functions. Now imagine a king, and he stamps a seal. He stamps an important letter with his royal seal. And what could we say, what would we say about that letter? Well, first of all, we would say that the royal seal authenticated and confirmed the letter as genuine and true. Anyone who saw that letter would know that this letter was from the king. Second, the royal seal marked the letter as the king's property. This was his letter, not someone else's. And third, the seal secured the letter, warning people not to tamper with it, or else they were tampering with what belonged to the king. So in much the same way, to be sealed with the Spirit confirms that we truly know God, marks us as God's own, and secures us under his protection. And no one can break that seal. No one can remove that seal. No one can question its authenticity because the God who purposes all things, who works all things, the eternal, all-powerful God has set his seal upon you. And it's not just any seal. It's God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. There is no greater guarantee than the seal that God has given you, the seal of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 15, God makes a promise to Abraham that he will inherit the land of Canaan. And Abraham asks him, how will this happen? And if you remember the passage, God tells Abraham to bring him a female cow a female goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abraham brings the animals, and he slices them in half. It must have been pretty bloody work. And he sets the halves apart from each other. And a deep darkness falls upon Abraham and, and the surrounding environment. And God speaks to Abraham and tells him that the land will be his. And the strangest thing happens a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the animal pieces that Abraham has set out. Now, what was God up to? Well, in those days, when two people made a contract with each other, they would lay out the animal pieces as Abraham did, and they would pass between them, essentially saying that if either person didn't uphold their end of the contract, what what happened to the animals, namely being cut in half, being killed, would also happen to them. It was a way to secure a contract. But interestingly enough, God passes through the pieces by himself, without Abraham. In that way, he was absolutely guaranteeing that his promise to Abraham would come to pass because there is no one greater that God could swear by than himself. He is, there's no one more truthful, no, more powerful, nor more wise than God himself. And sometimes when I read that passage, I think that's pretty cool. I wish God would guarantee his promises to me with such like an amazing sight, you know, to you know, see a, a fire pot pass between a bunch of sliced up animals. But when we understand that we've been sealed by the Spirit, we realize that God has done something greater than what he did for Abraham. He didn't just give us a one-time incredible experience, a temporary glimpse of his presence. He has come to dwell within us with an intimacy that Abraham longed for but never experienced in his lifetime. 
he seals us with himself. The Father in Christ seals us with the Spirit. All three persons of the one triune God are working for us, absolutely guaranteeing that we are his. Our lives are absolutely secure. No harm can come to us. Nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Not even sin or death can separate us from him. Some of you here might struggle with assurance. You've heard the gospel. You believed in Jesus with all your heart, but you often question God's love or wonder if you'll lose your salvation or if your latest sin will cause God to finally throw up his hand and say, all right, I'm done with you. Can I encourage you to meditate on this passage, especially this verse? Know that you are secured, marked with the greatest seal, the greatest guarantee in the world. God in the person of the Holy Spirit And this was done because he chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you in love to be his son and daughter, to receive the fullness of his inheritance. And speaking of inheritance, verse 14 tells us that the promised Holy Spirit with whom we have been sealed is the guarantee, the down payment of our inheritance that we talked about in verse 11. Some translations might say, pledge, and some might say earnest, but down payment or earnest money carries the best meaning of the word, because while a pledge is more of a verbal agreement, you can pledge to to do something, a down payment or earnest money is often a stronger guarantee, and furthermore, it means a portion of the full payment with more to come. The Holy Spirit is a portion of our inheritance already given to us with more of our inheritance to come. This idea of already possessing our inheritance in part with the fullness of it yet to come is reflected in the next phrase of verse 14 as well. The ESV reads, until we acquire possession of it, speaking of our inheritance. But but here I actually prefer the NIV translation of the Greek text, which reads, until the redemption of those who are God's possession, or the NAS, which reads, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. We, of course, are God's own possession. Having been sealed by the Spirit, we have been marked as his. Now, why does Paul mention redemption again when he already mentioned it in verse seven? And that was kind of like a past redemption. You know, God redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ from sin and death. Well, like the promise of our inheritance that has already been fulfilled in part, but we have not yet received the fullness of our inheritance, the promise of redemption is actually the same way. The promise of redemption has been fulfilled in part. We've been freed from the shackles of sin and the consequence of eternal death through the precious blood of Jesus. Yet, there is a redemption yet to come, a future redemption. We are not yet freed from physical death. Our current bodies are continuing to decay and pass, and are continuing to pass away, and we await our physical redemption. Romans 8.23 says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, again, kind of that idea of 
the down payment of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the fullness of adoption, the redemption of our bodies, that future redemption. This verse speaks very similarly of how we receive the first fruits of the Spirit, the blessings of the age to come, and yet we are again waiting the fullness of adoption, the fullness of redemption. Now this tension, this dynamic between what has already been fulfilled and the fullness and the fullness, the complete fulfillment that is yet to take place is seen throughout the Bible over and over again and is a theological concept that is called the already but not yet. And for us, it's important to understand this idea of already but not yet because we need to live in both the already but and the not yet. Our hearts need the already because it's God's assurance that his promises are coming true. And we also need the not yet so we can properly understand why we are suffering, why we go through trials, why death and sin still assault us and our loved ones when they should have been defeated. And when we see the alreadiness of God's seal upon us through the Holy Spirit that now presently dwells within us, we know that our future is full of hope and glory because of the redemption that awaits us. The future redemption of our bodies is hope for those with disabilities, for those with terminal illnesses, for those who have been violated, to know that they will be made whole. Our future inheritance of the world is hope for those who have been belittled, disregarded, who perhaps struggled with poverty, who've never experienced financial security in their life. Now this may be a silly illustration, but if you've seen Avengers Infinity Wars, spoiler alert, but you should have seen it by now, there is a climactic moment when in the midst of a great battle over the plains of Wakanda, the Avengers are being swarmed by Thanos' army, and suddenly there is a blinding flash of rainbow light, and it knocks back the enemies, and a mighty hammer comes spinning out of the light, cleaving foes left and right, and when the dust clears, you see that Thor has arrived on the scene, and as he begins to run towards the enemy, lightning is arcing off of his body as he leaps to the sky to deliver a mighty blow. And if you watch that in the theaters, it was a glorious moment. <laughs> and I'll admit, it sent a chill down my spine, all right? It wasn't the Bible, but it still sent a chill down my spine. And I'm pretty sure in the theater, other people were cheering. But that is but the faintest shadow of the glory that the world will see when we, the sons and daughters of God, are revealed in all our splendor with the fullness of our inheritance, the fullness of our resurrection bodies. But until that day, when we, wait, when we face giant despair in the Downing Castle, let us be like Christian, I'm picking up the story again, who after praying with Hopeful, realized that he had a key, a key to the dungeon and all the doors in the castle. He had a key in his bosom all along. It was a key called promise. And with it, he opened the lock and the two of them escaped and made their way back on the road towards the celestial city. My fellow pilgrims, take hold of God's ultimate promise of himself. 
the Father who predestines, the Son in whom all promises are yes and amen, and the Holy Spirit who guarantees. Know today that our future is full of hope and glory because we have been predestined for a future inheritance and sealed for a future redemption. As in verse, and as verse 12 and the end of verse 14 say, it's not ultimately for our glory. Even our future glory of our future bodies will, pair, will pale in comparison to our greatest inheritance, God himself. When we see him seated on the throne, we cannot help but to cry out, to praise his glory, because that is, that is the, the ultimate purpose and the end to all these blessings. And we will cry out and say, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father God, these are very deep waters that we have waded into these past few weeks. There is so much packed into these, these 14 verses that we've been looking at. I pray that the rich truths of these verses wouldn't just be abstract theological concepts, but they would be true knowledge knowledge that changes our life, that gives us hope, that gives us hope about the future that we can hold on to when we are in the depths of despair, that we can hold on to when our future seems bleak and we wonder if you are for us, if we wonder that you care, if we question your love. God, teach us to cling to your promises, to hold fast to them, and to know that your promises have already been fulfilled. They are coming true in Jesus Christ. They have come true. And we are awaiting the day when the fullness of your promises will be revealed to us and we will experience them in glory. Change our hearts today that we might see these things and praise you. Turn us away from ourselves and to you to give you all the glory and honor and praise. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.